Hello and welcome to this final episode in the Burning Heart podcast series, Deuteronomy Wellness God's Way. We originally wrote this series for films, so do check out the videos free on our website at burningheart.org forward slash Deuteronomy. And do check out our other series too if you're looking for something new to do. Now this one is coming to a close. They're also all free on our website. And I'm David, David Ingle, and I'm the writer of this series and founder and director of Burning Heart. And it's a joy to me to have you with me for this final episode. As Moses begins to draw his farewell sermon series of Deuteronomy to a close, he gives the people of Israel instructions for a grand drama. Once they enter the promised land, half of the tribes of Israel are to gather on one mountain called Mount Gerizim, and the other half of the tribes are to gather on the hill opposite, called Mount Ebal. Once there, one half are to proclaim blessings over Israel, and the other lot are to proclaim curses. It must have been quite an occasion when they actually did it. Levites declaring blessings and cursings, and then all the people in their hundreds of thousands thundering back, Amen! I think God would give Hollywood a run for their money when it comes to spectacle and drama. And we're going to look now at the last chunk of Deuteronomy, chapters 27 to 34. And it's a bit of an eclectic collection. This drama, some preaching, a song, a final blessing, and then an account of Moses' death. But this theme of blessings and curses is the thread that runs through it. At one point, Moses sums it up like this. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. In some ways, it's quite an unsurprising ending. Modern scholars have discovered that ancient treaties often ended with ceremonies of blessing and cursing. So there's an element of this that would have felt very familiar to them a treaty or covenant between God and Israel. But this one comes with a twist, because unexpectedly and devastatingly, it comes with the expectation of failure. And the emphasis is not on the blessings, but the curses. As Moses looks far into the distant future and prophesies catastrophe and judgment, but then, even more surprisingly, through the clouds of disaster and darkness, he speaks a note of hope, of restoration, of the saving grace of God. And these final chapters of Deuteronomy begin with a choice. A choice between walking with God and following in his ways and walking away from God and doing things differently. Essentially, Moses places Israel at a crossroads but it's a crossroads where the final destinations for each route are clearly signposted and marked out. On the one hand, they're told, blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. That's Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. And Moses gives a series then of beautiful and poetic blessings. There's a lovely little wordplay on fruit at one point with promises of abundance, in blessings on the fruit of the land itself, flowers and crops and plants, in the fruit of their animals as their flocks and herds increase, and in the fruit of their own bodies and the promise of children. Blessings everywhere. This is what wellness God's way would look like for them. 
But the signpost in the other direction is equally clear. Deuteronomy 28.15 If you do not obey the Lord your God, curses will come on you and overtake you. They're promised fruitlessness rather than fruitfulness. And what follows here is then actually far longer than the blessings just before. A series of curses inverting but then also expanding on the earlier blessings that at times can actually be really very difficult to read. As Moses promises the downfall and destruction of the nation in graphic and harrowing detail. The reason for this is that all along God knew what path Israel would ultimately take. And in chapters 29 to 32, that's spelt out. As Moses prophesies how Israel will walk away from God, how Israel will disobey and what that means. Now, as is often the case when something significant is happening in the Old Testament, the prophecy actually comes twice. First as a simple prose account and then as a song. I find the poetry of the song, which comes in chapter 32, really brings this all to life for me. It can feel quite jarring because much of it is about judgment and judgment isn't normally something we want to sing about. But it's beautiful and evocative word pictures help me to grasp what is going on and why. And it all begins with a declaration of the greatness and goodness of God. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4. And I love that image of God as the rock, solid, secure, unshakable in his greatness, but also pure and good and perfect. And I think it's so important that we start here because so often when we go wrong, as the history of Israel will show, it's because we lose sight of who God is and his goodness and his greatness. And so we seek elsewhere and wander away from God. But Moses doesn't stop there. And as he continues, he begins to speak of God in more personal terms. He speaks of love. God shielded Israel and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young. Deuteronomy 32, 10 and 12. It's an image of such tender and loving strength as God watches over and protects Israel. And yet Israel turns away. Moses continues, They abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their saviour. Deuteronomy 32, 15-17. This is in many ways the key moment in the song, because it's here and because of this that the song turns to judgment. Earlier in the prose bits, Deuteronomy 29.18, Moses describes turning away from God as a bitter poison. And weed killers are a poison that work by getting the plant to absorb it and then blocking off the life-giving nutrients that the plant needs to survive. And in Moses' song, we see something very similar happening as the people turn away from God. Moses sings that they made God jealous with their foreign gods, verse 16. 
But this isn't just about them abandoning God for a competitor, because these other gods, or, or any other thing that we may turn to for meaning or purpose other than God, are actually a mirage, a fake. And Moses calls them out as false gods, which are not God, in verse 17, and then later in verse 21, simply as worthless. And worse, as the people turn to them, they turn away from God. And so, like dying plants swapping poison for nourishment in that illustration I used a moment ago of weed killer, they're cut off from the source of all life and goodness and wellness, or, in the language of Deuteronomy, blessing. And that actually challenges and imperils the grace and blessings of God to them, and then his plans through them to bless us all. And so he acts. He acts to stop the spread of the poison. He acts in judgment. And the song continues in verse 22. A fire will be kindled by my wrath, one that burns down to the realm of the dead below. It will devour the earth and its harvests and set afire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap calamities on them. I find it very interesting, though, that this word of hot anger, of judgment, isn't spoken in the heat of the moment. There's nothing impetuous or ill-considered about God's anger. In fact, we find it spoken here in prophecy centuries before the judgment it speaks of will actually fall on Israel. And I think that that is key to understanding it. In many ways, it's actually key to understanding the whole Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy 31, God tells Moses why he's given him this song to sing. Verse 21. This song will testify against them, because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. I know what they are disposed to do, even before I bring them into the land that I promised them. The song is actually for their descendants and all those who come after us to show us that all along God knew what would happen. And for me, that completely changes how I see the Old Testament law. Because too often, I think we see the history of God's dealing with his people as a sort of plan A and plan B. Plan A is the law. God gives Israel the rules and instructions, the map that they need to be good and to earn the ongoing blessings of God. But Israel fluff it. They take the wrong turning, as the rest of the Old Testament shows us, and so God brings judgment on them and sends them into exile. And at that point, he initiates plan B, which is grace, which is Jesus. But here, right back at the start, even as God through Moses is still giving Israel the law, he tells Moses, I know what they're disposed to do, what's going to happen, even before I bring them into the land. So, it seems that plan A was never actually the plan at all. God knew that they would turn away from him and that judgment would follow. But that was never going to be the end of the story. Plan A was always Jesus. Plan A was always grace and forgiveness and salvation. Because just when you think as you read it that the song has finished in chapter 32, it continues unexpectedly. Verse 36, the Lord will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants when he sees their strength is gone. 
It's a stunning and glorious reversal as God acts now not in judgment, but mercy. And when all their pretense is gone and the emptiness that they followed has been exposed and no one and nothing is left to look to save only God himself, he carries on. Verse 39. See, now that I myself am he, there is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And surprisingly, perhaps given this prophecy of failure and disaster, Moses' words in Deuteronomy then finish in the next chapter with a poem of blessing. And for all the focus on judgment, it's grace and blessing that is ultimately the loudest and longest note. Israel will fail, but God's grace will not. And Deuteronomy just hints at how God will do this. The song in chapter 32 finishes with an enigmatic promise that God will make atonement for his land and people. And elsewhere in these chapters, Moses speaks of a saving transformation. How the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. That's chapter 30, verse 6. But there's enough here that we can follow the story through to the end and looking back see clearly what probably even Moses could only see hazily and in shadow. A barren hill and a new cut grave outside Jerusalem where the son of God himself would die and rise again for us and for our salvation. An upper room of disciples praying when with rushing wind and tongues of flame the Holy Spirit came and filled all those who were there. And this is our story. This is the gospel. And this was always God's plan A, God's only plan. But why? Why, if that was always God's plan, didn't God just send Jesus at this point? He could have done, and the whole sorry tale of Israel's sins and failures would have been skipped. This is actually something that Paul spent a lot of time wrestling with. What was the point of the law? If salvation comes through faith in Jesus, then why was the law necessary? And like a many-sided diamond, there are multiple angles and facets to this answer, some of which we've touched on earlier in the series. But a key one that Paul focuses in on echoes the lessons of these final chapters of Deuteronomy. Part of the point of the law is to show us that we're not as good as we think we are. We cannot obey God. We cannot be good. Paul explains in Romans 3.20, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Think of it like a powerful light exposing a stain or smudge. In the shadows of the half-light, we can miss the flaws. But when the light comes on, suddenly they're revealed for everyone to see. And through all the ages, our instinctive faith has always been that we can be good. That the path to God, the road to enlightenment, a better world, or however you put it, that that can be achieved by us being good, by working hard, following the rules. And all the other religions of the world, from the pagans of old to modern day faiths like Islam or Hinduism, have really always taught that. Even the more individualistic spiritualities or philosophies of today 
actually preach the same message. Be true to yourself. What does your heart tell you? Look within you and you'll find everything you need. Except you won't. That's the great lesson of the law. It begins with God rescuing and saving Israel and bringing them into a covenant relationship with him. And then after this perfect start, he gave them this perfect law, this perfect blueprint for life, and he told them to follow it. And if ever there was a way to be good, a route to holiness, a moral code that we could achieve through our own efforts, then this was it. But they couldn't do it. In other words, we think we can do it. We think we can be, sometimes even that we are, good until God gives us the yardstick of the law. And under the harsh spotlight of the law and its standards, we're exposed and we're finally forced to recognise our sin. And we see this in various different places in the law. For instance, the whole sacrificial system is really a response to sin, a gift from God to them to allow them to repent and receive his forgiveness. But in these final chapters of Deuteronomy, we begin to see that God's plan was always bigger than that, and that the law always pointed beyond itself to a real and full solution to all our sin. God always knew that the people would not be able to follow his commands and keep his covenant with them. As he tells Moses in chapter 31 verse 16, these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they're entering, they will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. And the blessings and curses and the prophecies of judgment and the whole ending of this book of Deuteronomy are to show us that, to turn us away from believing in ourselves or trusting in the other gods and beliefs of this world and to lay before us the consequences and disasters of a life and world without God. And yet, for all the darkness of these closing chapters, their ultimate intent is to point us towards the grace that will then dawn beyond them. Those promises of grace renewed, of atonement beyond judgment and of transformation of the heart, they're here to stir up in us a recognition of our need for God, that we may turn to him and be saved. And that's seen perhaps most clearly of all in the final chapter. It's a surprising chapter, written by a later narrator, probably long after the events it describes. It brings the book and the whole Old Testament law to an end, and so you might think that it would close on a high note. But instead, it finishes with Moses' death, tantalisingly close to the promised land, in sight of it even, but short. And short because of Moses' own failures. Because, as God puts it in Deuteronomy 32.51, even Moses, the great hero of the Old Testament, had broken faith with God on at least one occasion. And so he dies on top of a mountain, looking out over the land, but stopped by God from entering it. And the narrator then turns to the future, at first positively, but ultimately seemingly negatively, commenting in the book's final verses, Since then, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. 
And while the narrator does then remind us of Moses' greatness, it's a surprisingly downbeat ending, written against the backdrop of both Moses and Israel's failures, and seemingly dismissing the hope and victories of the promised land to come. Until you realise that those last words echo a promise made earlier in the book, in chapter 18, verse 15, that one day the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. And we realise that Deuteronomy and the whole Old Testament law finishes by pointing us to Jesus. And that's the note that I want to end this series on too because that is ultimately the main point and purpose of Deuteronomy, to point us to Jesus, to show us our need for him, to hint at the promise of the grace and salvation that we receive in him and show us that it is through him that we can experience life as God always intended it, that we can experience wellness God's way. What's the point of Deuteronomy? What's Deuteronomy all about? Well, in a word, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we reflect on Israel's sins and failings, we're also so conscious of our own and we repent. Forgive us for all that we do wrong. And yet, Lord, we rejoice in amazement at your grace and forgiveness. And as we finish this series we ask you to show us afresh the beauty of the cross, the beauty of your grace and forgiveness, and fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Circumcise our hearts and draw us closer to you. Come Holy Spirit, 